1: So we're going to read first Thessalonians chapter 5, and let's read together from the verse number 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Clearly, in our texts, we find ourselves again coming to a view of Christ's return. The reference is made there, verse 23, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That subject has been dominating our thoughts for the last number of months as we studied Revelation, and now I moved across to First Thessalonians chapter 5. It is a theme that is at the very core of Paul's thinking as he writes to this church. They have confusion, and there's been some difficulties around this particular doctrine in the church there in Thessalonica. And now as this epistle comes to a close, he again brings their attention to the subject. The Lord Jesus is coming again. Now, undoubtedly, we all know there are various differing views regarding the timing and the events surrounding the Lord's return. But it's interesting when you study the New Testament treatment of the Lord's return, consistently there are two outcomes that are produced or at least suggested that should be produced by a proper study of this subject. First of all, you have the necessity of being ready. The Lord taught that in Matthew chapter 24, the verse number 20 or 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what are your Lord's Doth come. But know this that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. The necessity in light of Christ's return to be watchful and to be ready. Language, of course, that we saw very clearly in the opening verses of this chapter. That those in Thessalonica would be those who are not sleeping, but are sober and watching. They're ready for Christ's return. The other outcome, of course, is the matter of holiness. Those who understand Christ's return are pushed in the direction of personal holiness, you think of 2 Peter chapter 3, you could turn there. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, of course, there is the treatment of the Lord's return. There are those who are skeptical, whereas the promise of His coming, the same idea, that's referred to in our portion of Scripture tonight. But in light of that, having demonstrated the Lord will return, Peter says in verse number 11, "...seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved." Again, he's drawing together the destruction of this world, the purification of this world, with the Lord's return. All these things shall be destroyed. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And so an understanding of Christ's return, on the one hand, drives the student of the subject to be ready to ensure they are trusting in Christ Jesus, and on the other hand, to be holy. And we see that Paul's thoughts here in chapter 5 of Thessalonians, Paul's thoughts on the Lord's return produce within him a burden to pray for the Lord's people, particularly with regards to their sanctification, with regards to their holiness. He knows they're ready. He said that in chapter 5 already. They're not of the darkness, they're of the light. He says, because what you are, therefore be watchful. They're ready already. But the issue is that they must also pursue holiness. They must have this work of sanctification wrought in their lives by the power of the Holy Ghost and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. In the context, Paul has given certain instructions for the church We've noticed that the preceding context deals with the subjects of public worship. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, pay heed to the Word of God, be thankful for God's Word. Those are the things that make up the substance of the previous verses. And then verse 23 begins, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. It's a very helpful verse regarding sanctification and our understanding of that subject. Paul is making the point, I believe, that there is no hope for obedience without the sanctifying work of God. That they will never properly obey the commands that Paul gives from Christ unless the God of peace sanctifies them. Sanctification, of course, the word that is used here in verse 23, sanctify you. The word uh, as it's used, Old and New Testament, has a sense of people being set apart. Lifted out of sin and set apart for God's use. Rescued from Satan's kingdom and placed into Christ's kingdom. All that language is involved in the concept of sanctification. But it also does involve the idea of personal holiness. Not just being set apart by God, but being made more like God in the work of holiness and sanctification. And so what we're seeing here is that after a series of commands, sanctification does involve the issue of the believer's obedience. There's all manner of confusion regarding the subject here, but I think this is one of the important proof texts that ties together the commands that God gives, followed by a prayer for God to sanctify. In other words, holiness is God's moral perfection. And we are to be holy, for God is holy. Therefore, being holy is being more like God. But how do we know what God is like? We know what God is like as how he's revealed himself in his word and also revealed himself in his commands. So God says, this is how you ought to live. Therefore, be holy, for I am holy. And so, very simply, being holy is obeying God. It's not all of it is, but it's a very important part of it. Hence, the prayer involves the idea that they are not yet sanctified. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now, here again, you've got to be careful. We know from Corinthians that there is a sense in which the term sanctification is used for God's work at the beginning of someone's Christian testimony. He refers the church in Corinth, chapter 1 the 1 Corinthians, chapter verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And so there is an aspect of this thought process that does involve a definitive act of God. He sets the sinner apart as they are born again in the Spirit of God, and they're brought into Christ. Being brought into Christ makes them holy. They're holy in Christ. But here, the verb is being used in another way that indicates the necessity of progress in this regard. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. In other words, they're not there yet. They haven't arrived at the place that God have them to be. And so Paul is praying for this. Now, I don't think you can explain this and say, well, Corinthians, they were, they were more holy than the Thessalonians. If anything, the opposite is the case. Corinth is marked by such confusion. Thessalonians, they had some issues regarding the doctrine of the the Lord's return. But Corinthians, they were all wrong all over the place. And yet they were said to be sanctified. But here the Thessalonians get this prayer that they would be sanctified wholly. I think it helps us to understand this prayer by seeing it in the whole. What's it mean in its entirety? How do you understand it? Because there are some tricky parts. It's one of those texts that does certainly contain some difficult concepts. Well, the idea of the verse is what you might term entire sanctification. But what I mean by that is not what other people may mean by that. But the verse has this idea of entire sanctification, or perhaps better to put it, it has the idea of thorough sanctification, an intensive work of sanctification. And we're going to see that. It is not suggesting that Paul is praying here that they get to the point that they are sinlessly perfect. That's not it. We know from first John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. It's very clear in first John that sin remains. We see it also, of course, in Paul's experience in Romans chapter seven. So this is not a prayer, it cannot be a prayer. For perfection, sinless perfection before the Lord's return. And yet there are some read it that way, they see it that way, some hymn writers saw it that way. This idea that the church could be sinlessly perfect prior to Christ's return, that cannot be the case. So sanctifying holy, verse 23, and being blameless does not mean that they are sinlessly perfect. So what does it mean? What does this verse teach us regarding the important subject of Sanctification. Well, if it doesn't mean that, it's also worth noting that this is not two distinct prayers. Again, some people divided this into two parts. Sanctify you wholly and be preserved. They're really the two ways of expressing the same petition. That they would be, if I can put it this way, that they would be preserved unto being blameless when Christ returns. And so the two things are coming together. They're being kept by the power of God, 1 Peter chapter 1. They're being kept in that sense, and the working of God keeping them produces within them a life of sanctification and blamelessness. Okay, don't see as two separate uh, constructs here. It's all coming as one collected whole. And so the idea is, he's praying that until Christ returns, the believers will be sanctified and kept by God's power. That's the whole. That's the summary. And let me try to prove that, and I trust you will become convinced of that as we work our way through the material. First of all, please note that sanctification is intended to impact all of our humanity. Sanctification is God's work in the entirety of our being, in the entirety of our humanity, in the entirety of our person. Look what it says. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now, initially, you may read that and think to yourself, well, that must mean that sanctification is finished, that you get to the point where there's no more sanctification to take place. And Paul's suggesting he's praying for that before the Lord returns. But the word holy is, it's a compound word, two words that come together. There is the word whole or all, alongside a word that means to mature, it can mean to complete. It can also mean to perfect. But when you put the two together, that does not mean that the word itself means that it's got the idea of bringing them to the point where there is no more sanctification to happen. It's not inevitably the answer the meaning of the word. The word has the idea of being sanctified through and through. Sanctified in every part sanctified holy in that sense. There's no part of our humanity untouched by this work. That's the idea of the verse. And that's confirmed when you see the second bit. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And then please just leave aside the italics, and your whole spirit, soul, and body. And so holy is being explained by what follows, namely your whole spirit, soul, and body. Here, we find ourselves facing another little tricky phrase in the Scriptures. This verse has been used, of course, in the debates surrounding the nature of humanity. Does man have three parts or two parts? It's known as dichotomy or trichotomy. Dichotomy, two parts. A physical part and a spiritual part trichotomy, a physical part, and then two distinct spiritual parts, spirit and soul. And so they'll turn to this portion, they'll turn also to Hebrews chapter 4, that's the only two verses they have, and they'll turn those verses and suggest there is some distinction between the spirit and the soul, and therefore we are trichotomists. I don't want to get stuck on this tonight, as tempting as that may be. I want to try to understand the verse. So do we have a spirit and a soul, or just one spiritual part? Well, I think it's worth saying that usually, in the New Testament, there are only two parts of man demonstrated. You think of the language of the Lord in Matthew chapter 10, don't fear the one that can kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the trichotomists will say, well, clearly the spirit couldn't be destroyed in that sense. But neither is the soul or the body being destroyed in hell. Then you get some idea of annihilationism involved in that aspect, and that would be wrong also. And so the idea that Christ is presenting here is that there are these two parts. There's the soul and there's the body. It's also Paul's understanding in Second Corinthians chapter 7, in the context of holiness, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Does that suggest there's no corruption in the soul? If it's not required to be cleansed in that sense, and again, you you find yourselves running into some very, very significant problems if you shut yourself into a trichotomist understanding. Now, I understand this. The spirit and the soul can be used as words synonymously or interchangeably. Mary says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And so I think the idea here is not the idea of trichotomy, But the idea of totality, all of our humanity, sanctify you in every part. In other words, in every part of your spirit, soul, and body, that it all be preserved, blameless. It's the idea of every aspect of humanity, and it's using a poetic form in that regard. In the same way that we're told to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. A multiplication of terms to denote the entirety of someone's humanity. Not that you cut these things up into separate parts, but rather the language used for the wholeness of man. And so I think the thought here is, the prayer is, that they'd be sanctified in their actions. That's obvious. That they would not sin, but do what is righteous. That they'd be sanctified in their thoughts. That they would think God's thoughts, not man's thoughts. Sanctified in their words. Not words of gossip and bitterness, but words of grace, words of truth. They'd be sanctified in their feelings, that their emotions would be sanctified, that they would be set free from those emotions that are part of the fall. But they would know a peace in their emotions. They would know a settledness in their emotional life, joy in their emotions. All of those things, the entirety of their humanity, touched by the power of God in their sanctification. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a good prayer to pray every single day. Lord, sanctify me in every part of my life today. That's the sense of this sanctification aiming at the entirety of our humanity. Secondly, sanctification aims at purity. Sinless perfection is not achieved this side of glory. Again, you've got to cut out important parts of the Scriptures to end up with that understanding of this. Blameless, as a word that's used here, pray your spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Blameless. The word blameless there has the thought of being free from fault. Or stain. this idea of, of there being mortal purity. Freeness from error. Now that's used, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's used there. Ye are witnesses, and God also, How holily and justly, and here's the word, and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now, do you believe for a second Paul is suggesting that he was sinlessly perfect in his time in Thessalonica? That he perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength at that time? that he was able to love his neighbor as himself perfectly at that time, is he claiming sin as perfection? And not just for himself, but for all the apostolic band who were there at that time. They all behaved themselves blame- unblameably. No, the idea is of external purpose that was not worthy of reproach. That there was nothing can be pointed out they did this wrong or that wrong. It's not a claim of sin as perfection. It's a claim of outward obedience to the word of God. And that's a good thing. It's also used there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and the verse number 13 is a very similar prayer, of course, to what you have. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And this idea that God will work in their hearts to the point that they be unblameable in holiness. And so holiness connected with this word unblameable, but... Look what it says in verse 12. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all man. In other words, there are deficiencies. And so he's saying they need to improve, they need to grow, they need to abound. And so in that thought, there's already the idea that this concept of being unbelievable is not sinless perfection achieved when Christ returns. There's a couple of other references that I think are useful uh, to consider You think of Luke chapter 1. Go back to Luke chapter 1. And here we see a description of what we might term an Old Testament couple. And it's worth seeing there is a comparison here between the Old Testament and the New in this term. Luke chapter 1 and the verse number 6. Here describing Zacharias and Elizabeth. Verse 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless." So they're sinless. No way. So I caress us some trouble when it comes later on in the chapter understanding what God is saying in his life. And so are we suggesting he could be sinlessly perfect one minute and then lose that later on? Well, of course, there are some people suggest that, but that's not the view of the Scriptures. The idea, again, is one who conformed and was upright, like the Old Testament term, a man who was upright like Job, Consistently working and walking in righteousness, walking in integrity. Turn to Philippians chapter two, and this I think is the is the sort of definitive proof of this concept. Philippians chapter two. I'm not suggesting these things are are easy. I suspect they were easier in the days of the apostles. They understood the words uh, better than we do even today. But in Philippians chapter 2 and the verse number 15, it says this, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. You see the connection of thought there? That as they live in this world, they would live in a way that they could not be rebuked in a fallen world because they're blameless and harmless. They are, if you like, sincere and genuine. And you go back to chapter 1 of Philippians, verse number 10, his prayer for them is that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till or at the day of Christ. And so Paul's burden here is that the Philippian believers and the Thessalonican believers, that they be marked by genuineness, by sincerity, by consistency, by a pattern of obedience, it's a prayer that they would consistently walk with God in all of their lives. You see, you've just got to remember this. This is very, very straightforward. Remember that our acceptance with God on that final day does not rest on our sanctification. It doesn't rest on that. Your acceptance with God when Christ returns rests on your justification. It rests on Christ's perfect righteousness. And yet there's some, and this mindset has crept into their mind where they think to themselves, I must be blameless so that I can be accepted by the Lord on his return. They hold that idea. They may not verbalize it that way, but that's how they live. They live their lives trying to earn acceptance with God by their being blameless when he returns. And so you get this this crazy idea that, well, what if the Lord returns and and I'm I'm sinning at that time? Do I lose my standing with God? Of course you don't. Your justification is unchangeable. But there is the reality that in our sanctification, there is the pursuit of Christ's likeness. Not to earn acceptance, but because sanctification pleases the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that, Furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you received of us how we ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So pleasing God, walking with God. And then verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. So the will of God is their sanctification, that they'd abstain from sin, and in so doing they'd please the Lord. And so, understandably, there is that desire within the believer to please God at his return. It's also, of course, the proof of a new heart. A new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you that you'll cause you to walk in my statutes. When We walk in obedience to God when we find ourselves given a new heart by God. And so, the promise here is not of perfection. The new heart is not just perfection. But it produces sincerity. It produces consistency and a pattern of obedience in the child of God. And of course, it's also true that this matter of holiness is the pleasure of the true believer. God works in us both to will and to do. Hence, we work out our salvation. Philippians chapter 2. So, sanctification here, as Paul prays, he's praying for sanctification in all of their humanity, aiming at purity in every part of their humanity sanctify you wholly your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ I don't remember where I first heard the illustrations it was a long time ago now I think but sanctification is compared to the concept of our lives being like a house and the spirit of God comes into our lives and like, like a, a house he comes into our lives and he works in every single room he works, if you like, in the living room, and he works in us hospitality. He works, if you like, in the, in the bedroom, and he works in us purity. He works in every area of our lives in such a way that we are, we are purified, and there's not one part of our house left untouched. There's no door closed and locked to the Spirit of God, whereby they were saying to the Spirit of God, not in there. And if we say that, we are in trouble. The Spirit of God comes and works in every single room, and he works in every room thoroughly. He doesn't leave the corners untouched, doesn't ignore under the bed. He ensures that our lives are dealt with in thoroughness, that there's not an aspect of our lives that we get so far and we think to ourselves, oh, I have arrived now, I'm a lot better better than it used to be like a teenager's bedroom and there's there's a thousand things that are out of place and they get to the point there's only 500 and you go well it's a lot better than it used to be well the spirit of god keeps going he keeps working in every single part of that messy room to the point that we are then brought to the point that we're blameless walking in righteousness sincerity not sinlessly but sincerely in the sight of god and this is god's gracious work in our lives I'm going to go back Uh, next time. We're going to look at the work of God in this. That's the third main thought, and that is that sanctification depends on the power of deity. I want to look at the idea of the God of peace and also the sense which God is faithful to do this work. But for now, I realize that the power of sin is such that you need the power of God to work in your life to sanctify you.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.